Dean Bible Ministries presents the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Robert Dean, pastor of West Houston Bible Church. These and other Bible lessons are available from www.deanbible.org. Now let's listen to our lesson from God's Word, the Bible. How shall a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed thereto according to thy word. Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Jesus prayed to the Father, sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we get started this evening, let's uh, have a opening prayer. We'll have a few moments of silent prayer to give you the opportunity to make sure you're in fellowship, and then I'll open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, in your plan, you have declared the end from the beginning. You have laid out a blueprint of human history. And as we march through human history, we see the outworking of your plan. We see how you have uh, injected yourself numerous times into human history with new revelation to further our understanding of your plan and its progress. And as we go back in time to look at how you worked in the history of Israel and the preparation of uh, the nation Israel for the coming of our Savior. We see these things as we study First Kings. There are many lessons here. We pray that we might be encouraged and strengthened by your faithfulness as we study these things and also the different doctrinal principles that we see exemplified in the text. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. We're in First Kings chapter 2. Put the slide up on the board to see get our get our bearings. We're still in the first section, one one to two forty six, which deals with the establishment of Solomon. We've looked at the uh, Adonijah conspiracy to prevent Solomon from uh, becoming crowned king. We've looked at uh, his accession to the throne, David's uh, <clears throat> run around to get past Adonijah before he uh, was established in his own coronation. We looked at David's final words to Solomon and then David's death, and then the carrying out of David's final instructions to Solomon. And we covered that last time as he began to carry these things out, specifically in relationship to Adonijah. Now, this is important to understand, I think, that anything that we interpret Within the Old Testament, we have to go back and, and understand it within the previous context. And I know I've mentioned that before, and I probably sound like a broken record. But so often when you read in commentaries, you study what other men have done, I, and which, of course, I'm doing every week, again and again, they come back to trying to interpret the Old Testament and what happens there in light of what is revealed later in the New Testament, instead of taking the events that occur at a period of history approximately 970 B.C. and interpreting those events in light of the revelation that had already been given and not in light of later revelation. The problem is people come back, and for one thing, they tend to misconstrue some of the New Testament revelation regarding uh, love and regarding 
the role of the kingdom and ethics, and they try to read that back into the Old Testament. They come to sections like what we find in 1 Kings 2, which looks like some sort of vindictive uh, operation against all of the personal enemies of the Davidic dynasty. And that's not what it is at all. They just don't put on the right set of glasses to come and look at this. And so the result is then that they start trying to extrapolate some application in terms of government and society and some other things like that. And that's not the purpose for this text. The purpose of this text isn't to give us a model of how government is to operate. That, that's, that's not its function. It's to show the faithfulness of God in light of the Mosaic Covenant and in light of the Davidic Covenant and how God is working to bring into human history the seed of the woman that comes through the seed of Abraham that comes through the seed of David. It's really pretty simple. And you just watch how God is working that out. And in the midst of that, you have an application of the Mosaic Law that seems pretty harsh. And the reason it seems pretty harsh is because a lot of us come out of a fairly, uh, and I'm using it in a classical sense of the term, a liberal Western culture where there is a large degree of freedom where we don't live under any kind of rigid, authoritarian, monarchical type of government, and where we live in a in a modern sense of the term liberal now, so I've used it two different ways in one paragraph, a liberal sense that tries to look at people in a in a in a wrong way is basically good, and so we don't want to exercise capital punishment. We don't want to exercise corporal punishment. We don't want to punish children anymore. We want to give them options. We want to treat three-year-olds like they're adults, and we don't want to uh, impose uh, will from someone who knows what they're doing upon people who don't know what they're doing. And so because we come from a very different culture, uh, people often misunderstand what's going on here, but it's all very, very clear, as we'll see tonight, that uh, God is working through all of this, and Solomon is not carrying out a personal vendetta, neither is he carrying out some sort of personal vendetta uh, agenda that David set for him. He is doing what needs to be done in a real-world environment, understanding the depravity of the human heart, understanding what has already happened with these men who have conspired against him, what brought them to that point in this conspiracy, and recognizing that if he doesn't do anything, then it truly threatens the unity of the kingdom that God has established under him. And so in light of the Mosaic Law, and not in contradiction to anything in the Mosaic Law, he uh, carries out these executions and these uh, punishments. So we saw that last time as Solomon executed Adonijah. He had extended grace to Adonijah. We saw that. He said, Adonijah, I will be glad to take you at your word that you're not going to try to uh, overthrow the kingdom, that you're not going to try to usurp the throne, and as long as you behave yourself, everything's fine. 
But he didn't. He committed treason, and as soon as he began to commit treason, Solomon acted swiftly and certainly, which is how justice should be handled. We should not handle justice in such a way that it takes 10 or 12 years before somebody who has committed a capital crime is is executed. In in my opinion, there ought to be a set-up revision of the court system where they've got eight months to run it through a review system, and that's it. The end of eight months, they get executed. If, if there's such a distance between the punishment and the crime, then it has no uh, benefit in terms of uh, persuading people not to do it. That's not the ultimate purpose of capital punishment, but you're not go- it's not going to be a negative thing if it takes 10, 12 years, and if in many cases it doesn't happen. There needs to be a swift and certain uh, punishment. So Solomon is carrying that out, but it's not across the board. He doesn't treat every one of these conspirators in the same way, even though they're all guilty of treason. There is grace from the throne of David. So we saw that Adonijah failed to uh, put aside his desire for the throne, and so Solomon sent out Benaiah to execute him. That was the last thing we looked at last time in verse 25. So now we're in 1 Kings 2.26. And he has to deal with the second problem. And the second problem is Abiathar. And Abiathar is the high priest. But even though he has been loyal to David, and that is going to count in his favor, which shows that there's grace from Solomon. Even though he has been loyal to David, even though he has served faithfully as high priest for many, many years, and even though he was always loyal to David through the Absalom revolt and everything else, uh, Abiathar has had aligned himself with Adonijah in his revolt, so it's necessary to uh, deal with Abiathar. There has to be punishment. And so he addresses Abiathar in verse 26, And to Abiathar the priest, the king said, Go to Anathoth to your own fields, for you are deserving of death, not because he had just upset Solomon, but because he had committed treason against the Lord's anointed. Uh, go back to how David handled the situation with Saul when he was in the uh, when he was in the cave. He would refuse to lift a hand or to do anything. In fact, he even felt badly that he had cut off the hem of Saul's robe because that was a sign of disrespect. So what we see in the Bible is an extremely rigid standard of protocol for respect and honor for a person that has been placed by the Lord in a position of authority, and that there is no basis whatsoever to dishonor them, to treat them with disrespect, or to try to move them out of office. Any act of rebellion like that, any act of disrespect for authority, follows in the pattern of Satan's rebellion against God. This was what lies in in the background. So uh, Abiathar is worthy of death. He's committed treason, which is a capital crime, but Solomon is willing to commute the sentence in grace. He says, uh, go to Anathoth, your own fields, 
For you are deserving of death, but I will not put you to death at this time because you carried the ark of the Lord God before my father David and because you were afflicted every time my father was afflicted. So because of your past loyalty, because of your devotion to God, uh, you, um, uh, Solomon says he will not uh, execute him. Now let's just look at a couple of things here for historical background to understand some of the uh, aspects here. First of all, if I can get the slideshow to work here, there we go. Pull up a map to get oriented. Over here on the left, you have the Mediterranean, down, this body of water down in the center. Lower center is the Dead Sea. Just to the due west of the northern tip of the Dead Sea is Jerusalem. Anatoth is located just about five miles north of Jerusalem. It would still be in the city limits today. It's just on the uh, northern edge of, of the city. This is where uh, Abiathar had some, had some property, and so he was basically being put under house arrest. He was being retired and being renewed from and removed from the high priesthood. Now, his removal from the high priesthood is a fulfillment of prophecy, and we see how God has worked through this in fulfilling a prophecy made back in 1 Samuel chapter 1. So let's take a moment just to backtrack on this to see what's happening here. Abiathar is the son of Ahimelech. Ahimelech was the high priest at Nob. Now, Nob is also located uh, on the outskirts of ancient Jerusalem, modern Jerusalem. Those of you who've been to Jerusalem before, Nob was located up on Mount Scopus, up in that area. So it's just to the north and east of the Temple Mount, and that was the area where the high priests were serving at the time of David. And one of the times when David flees from Saul, he goes to the priests at Nob in order to get some food. And he goes there, and Ahimelech provides food for him, but Doeg the Edomite is there, and he sees David. He knows that Saul's after David, so he goes and reports to David that Ahimelech is um, has been giving aid and comfort to the enemy, which is David. So Saul sends his militia up there, and they massacre all of the priests, and the only one who survives is Abiathar. And that's covered in 1 Samuel chapter 22, verses 20 to 22, and, and referenced again in um, 1 Samuel 23, 6 and 9. So Abiathar leaves there, goes and joins up with David as David goes into the uh, wilderness of Judah to hide out from Saul. And later, when David comes into Jerusalem, brings the ark, Abiathar is uh, part of that. But his, his history or his lineage goes back further than that. Turn with me to 1 Chronicles chapter 24. First Chronicles has a lot of genealogies in it. And the reason for that is Chronicles, uh, the first and second Chronicles are written after the return from Babylon. The people have fallen away in apostasy again. And the purpose for writing Chronicles is to sort of uh, restore uh, a sense of pride and devotion to God 
a pride in their Jewishness and a devotion to God among the exiles who have returned to Jerusalem. And part of the reason you have the genealogies here is so that the line of the seed is traced. That's what the genealogies do in the Old Testament. If you read them and you think, why is all this information here about who gave birth to whom, keep your eye on the ball. The ball is the seed of the woman. And all the genealogies that give you the ages and specifically are the ones that are tracing the line of the seed. And so that anchors Jesus within the whole flow of human history. These aren't just thrown out here because the Jews were just obsessive, compulsive about keeping records. In First Chronicles chapter 24, we have the line of the of the priests, and it talks. The chapter deals with how the priests are organized. The Levitical priests are organized. And in verse one, we read: Now these are the divisions of the sons of Aaron. So Aaron is Moses' older brother. Aaron is the first designated high priest for Israel, and the high, the Levitical high priesthood must come through Aaron's line. Aaron had four sons: Nadab, Abihu, Eleazar, and Ithamar. Nadab and Abihu are the two that go into the uh, tabernacle offering what the uh, English translates as strange fire. That is, it was an unauthorized uh, incense offering to the Lord. They wanted to define religion on their own terms. And so uh, they were instantly executed by God. God is a firm believer in capital punishment. He didn't wait. He didn't give them uh, five appeal trials. He just uh, executed them on the spot. That's verse 2. They had no children. And that left Eleazar and Ithamar as the two sons of Aaron through whom the priestly line would go. Now, Ithamar, the line of Ithamar, was the primary line down to the, uh, down to, actually down to, Abiathar, he's in the line of Ithamar. The line of Ithamar goes down through Eli. Eli is the high priest at the beginning of 1 Samuel. He's the one to whom Hannah comes with her uh, child Samuel to dedicate him to the Lord. And he is a a lazy, corpulent uh, apostate, and he has raised two rebellious, self-centered, spoiled sons, and God announces to them in First uh, Samuel that First Samuel chapter two verses thirty and thirty six that He is going to take the high priesthood from the family of Eli. So Abiathar would have been aware of this family because Eli was probably his great great grandfather or great 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 grandfather and he would have been aware of, the, of God's announcement that he was going to take the priesthood away from the uh, line of Eli and from the line of Ithamar. So God is going to transfer it to the line in descent from Eleazar and that's Zadok. Verse 3 we read, then David was Zadok of the sons of Eleazar. So uh, Zadok comes from a different line, and we're not really sure exactly what transpired, but somewhere along the line, there's this uh, sort of a split that occurs in light of the tabernacle. There was an altar at Gibeon. Gibeon was located about five miles 
uh, north of Jerusalem. It's not very far from Anatoth. It was, uh, has been identified today as the modern El Jeeb, which was uh, first proposed as this site in 1838 by one of the most prominent uh, early explorers of Israel, a man by the name of Edward Robinson. Those of you who were in, uh, been over to Israel, you remember Robinson's arch there on the side of the, of the uh, western wall of the Temple Mount. And that's named after him. He was involved in discovering a host of different things. Every time I look something up, Edward Robinson was the first to discover it. So he identified that site. Excavation in the 50s and 60s of uh, the 20th century uh, uncovered a number of artifacts that, in fact, had the name of Gibeon stamped on them. So we have a strong certainty of where Gibeon was. The Gibeonites, if you remember, were the people who deceived Joshua back during the uh, conquest, and they dressed up in old tattered clothes and covered themselves with dust and acted as if they had traveled a long way and came to Joshua and said, uh, please enter into a treaty with us that you won't destroy us. We don't live around here. We live far from here. See how our, when we left home, our shoes were new and our robes were new, and now everything's worn out. And Joshua fell for the deception, entered into a... He did not um, seek God's guidance before he entered into a peace treaty with him, and he entered into the peace treaty, which is a great lesson for the importance of prayer, consultation of the Word of God before you make important decisions. And he made a bad decision, and this came back to haunt the Jews. They were supposed to annihilate all the Canaanites, but they couldn't annihilate the Gibeonites because they had entered into this peace treaty. So that had uh, eventually had uh, some uh, negative consequences during the time time of Saul. Gibeon is also the location of where um, uh, Joab killed Amasa and left him out on the road to die uh, bleeding to death. So there's a lot that happened at Gibeon, but it was the site of a major altar. And so there was part of the priesthood that operated at Gibeon to the north of Jerusalem and another uh, part uh, with the high priest associated with the Ark of the Covenant and the tabernacle that was located on the at the uh, threshing floor of Uruna, the uh, Jebusite there in Jerusalem. So they operated in both places. But the primary, it seems like the most significant site, the primary site, was this site up in Gibeon. And this is important. I'm going into some detail on it because when we get into 1 Samuel 3 and Solomon goes to the Lord in prayer, the place where Solomon goes to offer his sacrifices and to enter into communication with God is at Gibeon. So this is a key site. So this is where... Um, where they, where Zadok was serving. Zadok, uh, apparently, his family had been appointed to serve the Lord there during Saul's time. So Saul, who's operating in total carnality, is used by God to make a decision, unbeknownst to him, that is eventually going to bring the uh, lineage of Eliezer into the high priesthood. So you see God's hand in the background, just because you don't know God is, just because God isn't overtly speaking, overtly revealing Himself, overtly uh, 
giving revelation doesn't mean that God isn't guiding in the process. Whether a person is carnal or whether a person is in obedience to God, God controls history. Jesus Christ is working out his plan, and whether man is obedient or disobedient, God is omnipotent, and he is powerful enough to bring about that which he intends without it being restricted by the volition of the creature. So Zadok has been as part of the lineage down from Eliezer. He's serving at uh, Gibeon, and uh, Abiathar is serving in the main temple as high priest in Jerusalem. So Abiathar would have been fully aware of what was going on and probably watched with some degree of consternation as he saw Zadok being raised in influence over the years. Zadok and uh, Abiathar together bring the ark into Jerusalem. And again and again he sees uh, David giving deference to Zadok. And now it is clear that because of... uh, Solomon's decision here in 1 Kings chapter 2 that Abiathar is being removed from the high priesthood and the lineage from uh, Aaron on his side ends. And this is a clear sign of how God works to fulfill uh, prophecy. And so that's why the line comes goes to Zadok and eventually it is the descendants of Zadok who are going to serve as priests in the uh, temp- in the millennial temple. This is described in Ezekiel chapter uh, 44 and following, that the Zadokite priesthood is the priesthood that will uh, operate in the millennial temple. Back to 1 Kings chapter, chapter 2. Verse 27, so Solomon removed Abiathar from being priest to the Lord that he might fulfill the word of the Lord which he spoke concerning the house of Eli at Shiloh. So here we have a fulfillment of prophecy. Verse 28, then news came to Joab, for Joab had, Joab had defected to Adonijah, though he had not defected to Absalom. So Joab fled to the tabernacle of the Lord and took hold of the horns of the altar. So at this point he is... Uh, doing, I'll show you the picture we had up last time of uh, Jeremy grabbing hold of the horns of the altar. This was a tradition that indicated that if somebody went into the sanctuary that they could uh, be protected by God and God would watch over them. But this was not uh, consistent with the law. See, everything is done in a manner that's consistent with the law. In Exodus 21.14, the Mosaic Law reads, If, however, a man acts presumptuously toward his neighbor, which, of course, Joab had done, he had killed uh, he had killed Abner and he had killed Amasa, he was responsible for uh, the murder of Ur- the death of Uriah the Hittite, so he is three times guilty that we know of, maybe more, If, however, man acts presumptuously toward his neighbor so as to kill him craftily, you are to take him even from my altar, says the Lord, that he may die. So there's no sanctuary by grabbing hold of the horns of the altar. And the purpose for this and the explanation of this 
and his motivation is, uh, Solomon's motivation is given in verses 31 and 32. Word came back, Joab's up there, he's holding on to the horns of the altar, what are we going to do? And the king says to Benaiah, do as he has said, strike him down and bury him, that you may take away from me and from the house of my father the innocent blood which Joab shed. See, the purpose for executing Joab is because he took innocent blood, and as long as the Davidic monarchy and dynasty allowed him to live, then that blood guiltiness was upon them. They were not treating the victims in honor, and they were not in obedience to the law. So the the rationale isn't because he has done something personal against Solomon, but because he has uh, committed a capital crime. Verse 32, So the Lord will return his blood on his head, because he struck down two men more righteous and better than he, and killed them with the sword, Abner the son of Ner, the commander of the army of Israel, and Amasa the son of Jether, the commander of the army of Judah, uh, though my father, David, did not know it. The point is, David, it was not under David's authority. Verse 33, their blood shall therefore return upon the head of Joab and upon the head of his descendants forever, but upon David and his descendants, upon his house and his throne, there shall be peace forever with the Lord. So this runs completely contrary to modern notions that somehow capital punishment is a violation of anything in the character of God. And it, in fact, it is consistent with the justice of God. And we see Solomon, he exercises grace towards Abiathar, but to the one who has been truly guilty of capital crime, he recognizes the uh, rationale for capital punishment. And so the result is that Benaiah goes up and executes uh, Joab and buries him in his own house in the wilderness. And the king then, as a result, put Benaiah the son of Jehoiada in his place over the army, and the king put Zadok the priest in the place of Abiathar. So you see how he ties these two, the, the writer ties these two events together at the end, and thus you have the establishment of his, his kingdom. This is the, uh, in fact, the final statement in this chapter at the end of verse 46, tells us that the purpose of this is to show how the kingdom was established in the hand of Solomon. So he's going to set up Benaiah as the commander-in-chief over the military, and he sets up uh, uh, Zadok as the high priest over the priesthood, and this now brings stability to his government. And he has gotten rid of those who were criminals, who were uh, treasonous, uh, but there's one who's left who is still a, a potential thorn in the side, and that is Shammai. Shammai is uh, mentioned uh, earlier in uh, Scripture in Second Samuel chapter 16, 5 to 13, as one who opposed David. He is a Benjamite. He is loyal, therefore, to the house of Saul. He has never forgiven David or his family for taking the, the monarchy away from, uh, from the family of Saul, which shows that he is not oriented to doctrine. He is not oriented to the plan of God. He is oriented to personal power. And he 
And when Absalom took over, he saw that as an opportunity to gain revenge on David, and as David is leaving and headed um, headed east across the Jordan and go to Mahanaim in the Transjordan area, uh, Shammai comes out of his house and he curses David. He just ridicules him and uh, treats him with disrespect. Once again, it's a violation of the principle of authority. And so this is uh, borders on treason. Later, Shammai repents of his attitude. He comes to David. He seeks forgiveness in 1 Samuel 19 when David comes back into town. But I think David understood that Shammai was probably just ingratiating himself to David because there's still at the core of his thinking an attitude of resentment to the house of David. And the only reason he's coming to David to uh, seek forgiveness is because David's back in power. I better make sure that I make up to him or David will uh, be vindictive or execute vengeance against me. But David recognized in his wisdom that Shammai represented uh, the Saulide dynasty and a potential threat to the throne. And so he warns, has warned Solomon about him, and Solomon uses wisdom in dealing with him. He doesn't take him out and execute him. He gives him parameters. He enters into a deal that Shammai uh, readily agrees to. And the bottom line is that Solomon is saying, if you really are, are supportive of me, then you will follow my uh, my regulations. And if you're not supportive of me, then you won't. And he he's not setting a trap for him, but he is setting up conditions of loyalty. And so in verse 36 we read, Then the king sent, called for Shammai, said to him, Build yourself a house in Jerusalem and dwell there, and do not go out from there anywhere. Now, I've shown you pictures of the Davidic city, the old city of Jerusalem. It's not very large. Some have suggested that the total uh, circumference of the walls around the city was not more than 5,000 feet. It wasn't very large. It's very small. Those of you been there know that. It's just a, a very small area around the old city of David. It wasn't a... Uh, this huge area people imagine is very small. And so one of the things that's going on here is that Solomon, who's on the top of the hill, I don't think I have a picture in this slideshow uh, that covers that. No, I don't. Um, one of the uh, things is the palace of the king is up high on the ridge, and it drops off very dramatically so that if you're up in the palace and you stand outside, you can look down and see every house in the city, you can see what's on the roof of every house. They say that's what got David in trouble. And it's, it's very clear. So Solomon wants him to build a house in the, in the city inside the walls so that he can keep an eye on him. He's going to watch him. And he makes a deal. You can't go anywhere. You, you're not going to leave. It, and he says in verse 37, It shall be on the day you go out and cross the book Kedron, Know for certain you will surely die and your blood shall be on your own head. It's up to you to make sure that you stay in town. You leave town, you're dead. And he agrees to this. He recognizes that. And it happened three years later that two slaves of Shammai ran away to Achish, the son of Maka, the king of Gath. So he's in the territory of the Philistines. 
down in what we call today the Gaza Strip, down to the southwest of Jerusalem. And so, and, um, so Shemai gets up and he saddles his donkey and goes to uh, uh, Achish, to Gath, to get his slaves, and he brings them back from Gath. Now Solomon is informed that, that uh, Shemai broke his house arrest that he left. He broke his parole, and so the king sent and called for Shemai and reminds him of the deal. And then in verse 43, he says, Why haven't you kept the oath of the Lord and the commandment that I gave you? And then says, You know, as your heart acknowledges all the wickedness that you did to my father David, therefore the Lord will return your wickedness on your own head. He locates the problem with Shemai's own treason. And that because he has this failure to orient to authority, he didn't pay attention to the oath that, that he had entered into with Solomon. He didn't pay attention to that. shows that there is a core problem of uh, rebelliousness in the heart of Shammai and that he, of course, has this has now worked itself out and it's under the sovereignty of God. And so Solomon uh, has him executed. The result is, um, verse 45, But King Solomon shall be blessed, and the throne of David shall be established before the Lord forever. This is not just pious terminology that he's just saying, well, he's, he's just trying to tack God's uh, will on what he has done. But he is showing that all that he has done in securing the throne is consistent with the Mosaic Law, it's consistent with the promise of God, and they are applying these principles in terms of the administration of the kingdom. But though all has been done pretty well, and though Solomon is said to be uh, uh, very uh, obedient to the Lord, there are still problems. Look, let's go into the next chapter, chapter 3. Chapter 3 and chapter 4, we see the wisdom, the wealth, and the government organization of Solomon. The wisdom, the wealth, and the governmental organization of Solomon. A lot of the next couple of chapters get into a lot of administrative detail that we'll sort of summarize and skip over, especially when we get into uh, Solomon's building projects and we'll get into all the detail about the temple and I'll try to have some good graphics for you on understanding the Solomonic temple. But what we read in chapter 3 is a divine viewpoint insight into the character of Solomon. And I want to focus on that just a minute so before we get into the administrative part and some of his uh, mistakes. Let's look at verse 3. And Solomon loved the Lord walking in the statutes of his father David, except that he sacrificed and burned incense at the high places. Now, the divine viewpoint on Solomon's character, and he's a young man at this point. He's probably in his late teens or early 20s. I tend to think he's probably around 18 or 19, not a whole lot older. And God's uh, summary of his character is that he loved the Lord, and this is uh, juxtaposed to the phrase walking in the statutes of his father David. So remember how God defines love back in Deuteronomy. 
If you love the Lord, you will keep my commandments. That's what God says over and over again. Those who love the Lord will keep my commandments. Jesus says the same thing. And First John says the same thing. That's the standard for church-age believers as well. If you love the Lord, you keep his commandments. It's not a matter of emotion. It's a matter of obedience. It's a matter of understanding who God is and being obedient. So Solomon is described as one who is fairly spiritually mature for his age. He loves the Lord. He walks in the statutes of his father, David. He had one flaw. Now, when it says that he sacrificed and burned incense at the high places, this does not mean that he is involved in idolatry. This means that he is not restricting his worship to a central sanctuary, which goes back to the, to the Mosaic law. He's not restricting his worship at the tabernacle. So this shows a less than complete uh, obedience to God in the area of, of worshiping God. This is going to be that little chink in his armor that uh, Satan's going to drive a whole bunch of trucks through. And this is going to be the problem with Solomon is that he is going to begin to compromise at key prag- in key pragmatic areas. And we're introduced to that first compromise in the first verse. Now, Solomon made a treaty with the Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and married Pharaoh's daughter. Now, if you're perceptive, you'll note that this is the first time since the Exodus that Egypt is mentioned. Now, if you go and you try to set up a comparison between biblical history and Egyptian history and follow the normal uh, uh, layout, the normal chronology for Egyptian history, you have the identification of of uh, the Exodus of the Pharaoh with Thutmose the third, you have the identification uh, are in, with the liberals, it's, it's Ramses. But whoever they choose, usually one of those two, there are numerous strong pharaohs and a strong Egypt after those particular pharaohs. But what we see in the, in the Bible is that there's such a devastation to the military-industrial complex, as it were, of Egypt that occurs at the Exodus that there's nothing left of them as a military power, and they're not mentioned again all that time in, in, in the period of the judges when the Israel is dealing with various foreign powers that keep coming in and, and conquering them, and you have uh, the, uh, those that come in from the east, the Midianites and the Amalekites and you have all these other groups. You never have the Egyptians mentioned. It's either the Philistines or it's some other group that immediately surrounds Israel. Egypt is never mentioned. Egypt isn't a problem for Saul. The Amalekites are, but the Egyptians aren't. Egypt's not a problem for David. But now Egypt is mentioned. And if we look at history and we take the Bible in its uh, at face value, we see that David has built a major, uh, a major empire 
and Solomon is going to increase its size and its strength and its wealth and its fame throughout the earth. What we see here, when Solomon makes a treaty with the Pharaoh king of Egypt, this isn't a treaty necessarily to to benefit Solomon in the sense that he's going to get uh, protection out of this or that he's looking to Egypt to protect his uh, southwestern flank. It is that the Pharaoh is looking at Solomon as a prize. Israel is the most powerful kingdom in history at this particular time, and Pharaoh is hoping to marry off his daughter to Solomon in order to strengthen his own position. And this is, uh, would, this is, seems to be indicated because Pharaohs didn't marry off their daughters to foreigners in order to, to uh, solidify peace treaties. They were very clannish and they did not engage in that kind of practice. So this shows that something very unusual is taking place and it is done and probably motivated by the king of Egypt in order to uh, strengthen his position in relationship to Solomon. And so Solomon brings her to uh, into the into Jerusalem. He marries the Pharaoh's daughter. He brought her to the city of David until he had finished building his own house and the house of the Lord and the wall all around uh, Jerusalem. So this covers a broad period of time, and this is what will be covered in the next several chapters, is his uh, construction of, of the city, his construction of his palace, his construction of the city of God. We don't really know who this Pharaoh was. There are some who think that it was a Pharaoh named Suanus, but we don't know. And the problem there, again, and the reason I don't ever try to identify these Pharaohs, is because I don't think we have a firm handle on how uh, the history of the Bible really fits or intersects with the history of, uh, of um, Egypt, the history of Babylon. If you take the traditional view of the history of Egypt, then the first dynasty starts around uh, 28, 2900 B.C., which is a couple hundred years before I think the flood occurred. But there's all kinds of problems that ensue as a result of this. So I try not to make those kinds of, uh, of identifications. So just simply speaking, this shows the uh, uh, superiority of Solomon over Egypt. And it also, much like uh, Abraham, following Sarah's advice to take Hagar, the Egyptian, it opens the door to problems down the road because the Egyptian uh, wife is going to bring her idols with her and uh, Solomon is going to compromise and allow her uh, to worship them. So in verse 2 we read, Meanwhile the people sacrificed at high places because there was no house built for the name of the Lord until those days. So that just introduces us a summary overview of what's going to be covered in the next several chapters. Now, verse 4. Now, the king went to Gibeon to sacrifice there, for that was the great high place. Solomon offered a thousand burnt offerings on that altar. This must have been extremely impressive. An altar 
Some of these altars that they've uncovered were enormous. I don't know what you think of what comes into your mind when you think about what these altars looked like, whether the image I already had in my mind was something about maybe three or four feet square. These were probably about 15 to 20 feet square. They were enormous. Some of them were as large as this whole block of, of seats over here. And they were maybe elevated uh, 10 feet, 15 feet high, so that all the people could watch the priests uh, carrying out the sacrifices on top of the altar. And you might have as many as eight or ten priests on the altar at one time sacrificing uh, the lambs and the goats because especially certain uh, feast days, they had to sacrifice for uh, thousands of people. So it was a real uh, mass production operation, uh, so to speak. So Gibeon goes, uh, Solomon goes to Gibeon to sacrifice there, offers a thousand burnt offerings on the altar, and at Gibeon the Lord appeared to Solomon in a dream by night. Now the Lord does not appear very frequently in dreams in the Old Testament. You have certain periods, especially in Genesis, where he appears in dreams to Abraham, he appears in dreams to uh, Jacob at Bethel, where he has the dream of uh, of the uh, stairway to heaven and the angels going up and down. You have dreams and uh, that Jacob had, although they are not dreams where God speaks to him. But it seems that the uh, speaking in dreams by God is rather limited. People come along today every now and then. People say, "Well, God spoke to me in a dream." This was rare, even when God did it. He only spoke in dreams to a handful of people in the Old Testament. So it appears to Solomon in a dream by night. God said, ask what you shall give. And this is Solomon's uh, famous prayer where he appeals to the Lord to give him wisdom. He shows that at a young age he has tremendous humility. There's a contrast between him at this age and his son Rehoboam, When Solomon dies and Rehoboam becomes king, he doesn't listen to the older, wiser advisors of his father, but he listens to the headstrong, arrogant young men. So we see that Solomon is remarkable in his maturity. He's remarkable in his humility. He's remarkable in his orientation to God. And he addresses the Lord in verse 6, You have shown great mercy... To your servant David, my father, because he walked before you in truth and righteousness and in uprightness of heart with you. Now, think of that as a summary of David's life. This is a man who failed the Lord on numerous occasions. He had some major flaws and failures and major sins with his adultery with Bathsheba, the conspiracy to have Uriah killed. But the summation of his heart's intent, this is why God says David had a heart after the Lord. It was his overall orientation. Even when he committed sin, it, it, his, his overall orientation is to obey the Lord, uh, though he failed. So Solomon can summarize and say, David walked before you in truth and righteousness and uprightness of heart, with you, you have continued this great kindness for him. That word is chesed, which has to do with the covenant faithfulness. It's terminology that goes back to God's promise to 
uh, God's promise to, to David in the uh, Davidic covenant. So he says, Now, O Lord my God, you have made your servant king instead of my father David, but I am a little child. And here he uses a word, na'ar, that isn't focusing on his chronological age, but on his lack of experience. Among um, uh, Josephus said he was 14. I think he was a little older than that. Uh, many commentators do. Uh, Rabbi said he was 11. He's older uh, older than that, but he is not. Uh, he's not by any means a, a, a mature young man yet. Late late teenage years. So he says, "You've made." He says, "I'm but a little child. I have no experience. I do not know how to go out or come in." And in verse 8 he says, And your servant is in the midst of your people whom you have chosen, a great people too numerous to be numbered or counted. Therefore give to your servant an understanding heart to judge your people. So he is asking for discernment. He asks for wisdom. He doesn't ask for money. He doesn't ask for power. He doesn't ask for fame. He asks for wisdom to be able to properly rule over God's people, that he may discern between good and evil, for who is able to judge this great people of yours? He shows proper authority, orientation, and humility, such that, verse 10, this speech pleased the Lord that Solomon had asked this thing, and so God says to him in verse 11, because you've asked this thing and have not asked long life for yourself, nor have you asked for riches, nor have you asked for the life of you, asked the life of your enemies, but have asked for yourself, uh, understanding to discern judgment. Behold, I have done according to your words. See, I have given you a wise and understanding heart, so that there has not been anyone like you before you, nor shall any like you arise after you. So the word for understanding is the Hebrew binah, which has the idea of discerning, being able to divide between things, being able to ascertain what the issues are. And the idea of wisdom is the Hebrew word chokmah, which has to do with skill. So God has given him a, a heart that is able to pierce to the issues, to understand them, and to make uh, skillful decisions. And so he is blessed with this as a gift, although believers can achieve a measure of wisdom based on doctrine, Solomon is given this as a special gift and blessing from God. And God says, because even though you didn't ask for these other things, because you asked for wisdom, you demonstrated humility, I have also given you uh, riches and honor, and he's going to give Solomon, bless him with prosperity, so that there shall not be anyone like you among the kings all your days. This tells us that the glory of Solomon's kingdom was the greatest on earth during that time. It eclipsed the Egyptians, it eclipsed the Hittites, it eclipsed the kingdoms in uh, Mesopotamia, there was no one like Solomon. In fact, what we know of the Solomonic kingdom is it controlled all of the major land routes. It, they had a monopoly on trade. You couldn't carry out commerce in the ancient world without dealing with Israel and dealing with Solomon. Everything uh, had to go through Israel. 
So God says, if you walk in my ways to keep my statutes and my commandments as your father David walked, then I will lengthen your days. Solomon awakes, verse 15, indeed it had been a dream, and he came to Jerusalem. He was in Gibeon. Now he goes down to Jerusalem to the Ark of the Covenant at the tabernacle, stood before the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord, offered a burnt offerings there, offered peace offerings, and made a feast for all of his servants. So he threw a huge Banquet. Now we'll stop there. That takes us up to the beginning of Solomon's reign, his gift of wisdom, and we'll see the episode with his application of wisdom that illustrates this in chapter, in the rest of chapter three. Now one thing to remember, a principle I discovered years ago in reading through Samuel is that God never does anything in private. He doesn't validate in public, and that's what we're about to see. See, God doesn't speak to people in private without giving clear, objective, external authentication. You always have people who come along, and today we live in a world where mysticism is moving to center stage. And you see this a lot with a lot of, uh, with a lot of Christians. They think that God speaks to them subjectively. That means privately, and they can just come out and say, well, God led me to make this decision. God led me to do th- make th- that choice, and there's no external validation. The same kind of thing happens back in Samuel when uh, God has Saul anointed as king. It's a private ceremony. Uh, Samuel runs into Saul. Saul's been out trying to find the donkeys that got loose. And Samuel goes to him, anoints him. It's a private ceremony. Saul can go back and say, God anointed me king. Well, so? But then there's a series of events that happen after that which validate the decision. Saul goes down and he prophesies with the prophets. He goes out and uh, takes a group of militia out and he defeats the enemies of Israel. These are the kinds of external things that validate that which was done in private. It's not just an internal subjective thing. No one can go out and say, the Lord spoke to me. That's what Deuteronomy 13, Deuteronomy 18 are all about. And so there is this very private dream where God promises wisdom to Solomon. And then the next thing that happens is we're going to see the extraordinary wisdom that God has given Solomon in action. It validates in an objective historical event what had happened in a very private experience, not subjective in the sense of something that was open to Solomon's own interpretation. That's why I'm using the word private. Subjective so often thinks, oh, well, that's just a subjective decision so-and-so made, and that's their own interpretation of an event. But here I'm saying this is private. In other words, there's no witnesses. Nobody else is seeing anything, not like when when, uh, Saul of Tarsus is on the road to Damascus. The Lord Jesus Christ appears to him and speaks to him. Now, those who are with him don't hear the, the exact words of the Lord, but they see the light and they hear the sound of the Lord's voice, even though they can't make out the words. See, that's not a private event. That is a public event with external witnesses that confirm it. But this is a dream that is that occurs when Solomon is asleep at night and it is 
completely private, no external witnesses. So God then comes along and will validate it externally. And it's so important to see these patterns all the way through Scripture. God never does anything in private or instructs anybody to do anything in private without validating it with clear external evidence that is uh, that is visible and verifiable to all. So we'll get into that next time. Remember, no Bible class this Thursday night because it's Thanksgiving. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to study your word. We thank you for all the things that you have given to us above all your word. You've given us your Holy Spirit who guides and directs us and who enables us to understand your word. And we pray that as so many are on the road this week, as many are traveling, we pray that they would have uh, be safe on the road and that this would be a, a tremendous opportunity with friends and family to glorify you and to be uh, consistent witnesses for the truth of your word. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.